Welcome, and thank you for joining me for Ghosts of Arlington, Episode 34, From Harlem to Tuskegee, Like Father Like Son, Part 2. Last week we saw that despite their willingness to risk their lives and fight for democratic ideals, when African-American veterans of World War I returned to the United States, those democratic ideals still didn't extend to them. Unlike in previous generations, they began to vocally point out the hypocrisy of these public policies and through the Harlem Renaissance, introduced black culture to the general public through various artistic works, including literature, music, and theater. Unfortunately, the Great Depression affected this movement considerably, and a race riot in New York, sparked by a misunderstanding, cut the Harlem Renaissance's moral authority off at the knees, and it never moved beyond the realm of the arts. But the 1930s also saw the Army promote Benjamin O. Davis Sr., while he was serving as the first black commander of the Harlem Hellfighters, to Brigadier General, and he became the U.S. military's first African-American general officer. Despite the discrimination he faced throughout his career, Davis's son, Benjamin O. Davis Jr., followed his father into the military became only the fourth black cadet to graduate from West Point, and the first in nearly 50 years, and at the beginning of World War II, he was selected to command the first group of black aviators admitted into the Army. He was officially the first Tuskegee Airman. Davis was seen as a tough CO, but was much respected by his men, one of whom later wrote that it was because of the discipline he exacted that we were able to make the record we did. Not only did the Tuskegee experiment not fail, as General Arnold had predicted, it was more successful than the senior brass could have imagined, and soon the Air Corps had more African-American pilots than it knew what to do with. In the end, the 99th was combined with three other squadrons to form the 332nd Fighter Group, which was stood up in 1942 with Davis, first a lieutenant colonel and then a colonel, commanding the entire group. As I mentioned back in episode 31, this fighter group was often called the Red Tails because the tails of their aircraft were painted red. By the time the Red Tails were activated, Pearl Harbor had been attacked, the U.S. had entered World War II, and white pilots were ordered into combat. The 332nd received no orders, so they could only stay in Alabama and keep training, and soon these pilots had logged more flight hours than any others in the U.S. military. But much as the Hellfighters had during the Great War, these aviators were left to wonder if they would be given the chance to prove themselves in combat. 
Their deployment orders came in 1943 and they were sent to North Africa to begin flying missions into Italy. Unlike the Hellfighters, the Red Tails would be allowed to fight under their own flag while flying American-built P-40 Warhawks, the best fighter plane in the American arsenal at the time. By July, one of their own, 2nd Lieutenant Buster Hall, became the first black pilot to shoot down an enemy aircraft and to receive the Distinguished Flying Cross. But it wasn't all beds of roses and fields, or rather skies, of glory after that. The majority of the missions given to the 99th were reconnaissance, or to attack ground targets, and the Red Tails initially saw relatively little air-to-air combat. As a result, they only downed a handful of German planes during their first several months in action, which happened to be the gauge by which the success of a fighter group was measured. This seemingly poor combat record led to General Arnold recommending that the Red Tails be barred from combat due to incompetence. As far as he was concerned, the experiment had failed just as he predicted it would. Colonel Davis was called back to Washington to defend his fighter group. When asked about the low aircraft kill rate, he said that his pilots couldn't shoot down what they didn't see, and the Luftwaffe hadn't been in the areas they were assigned to patrol since before the 332nd arrived. While in D.C., Davis got additional support for sending his pilots into combat when, while he was defending them, the Red Tails had a banner day, downing 24 enemy planes in a single mission, a new record for an American pursuit squadron, and earning an official accommodation from General Arnold, the man who had so recently labeled them incompetent. By the time Davis returned to Europe, the Red Tails were permanently back in action, had been incorporated into the famed 8th Air Force, and were flying new P-51 Mustangs. It was on these P-51s that the Tuskegee Airmen painted their tails red. The new aircraft brought with them a new mission. Allied bombers, especially American bombers who flew missions during the day, were taking a beating. As I mentioned, in World War II, the only stat that mattered for fighter units was the number of downed enemy planes. So as soon as bomber escorts saw enemy fighters approaching, they would break off and chase the fighters. That's when the larger contingent of enemy fighters would fall on the vulnerable bombers. When Colonel Davis directly ordered his pilots to remain with the bombers instead of chasing off after enemy fighters, Some of the airmen feared this new role was another way to keep them out of combat, and even worse, that Davis was in on it. But Davis was able to see the bigger picture, and his aviators soon did too. Why chase the Germans when the Germans will come to you? Before long, the Red Tails regularly engaged the Luftwaffe over the skies of Europe and protected American bombers as they did so. 992 Tuskegee pilots were trained from 1941 to 1946. Between May 1943 and June 1945, 355 Red Tails were deployed overseas. 68 were killed in action and another 12 died in accidents. In all, they flew 1,578 combat missions, 
178 bomber escort missions and only lost 27 bombers to enemy fire, versus an average of 46 among similar units. They shot down 112 enemy aircraft, including the first three jet aircrafts in combat history, and destroyed another 150 planes on the ground. They also destroyed over 600 train cars, dozens and dozens of ground vehicles, 400 boats and barges, and permanently knocked out of action a World War I-era Kriegsmarine destroyer. The unit as a whole was awarded the Presidential Unit Citation, the highest unit decoration in the U.S. military, and individual flyers earned one silver star, 96 distinguished flying crosses, 14 bronze stars, 744 air medals, and 8 purple hearts. Never one to lead from the ground, Colonel Davis himself flew 60 combat missions, including the mission over Germany that shot down those jets, and received the Silver Star, Distinguished Service Cross, and five air medals. When the Tuskegee Airmen and other African-American veterans returned home after the war, they were less hopeful about a change in America's racial attitude than their World War I predecessors had been, but change was coming, and it would take just about everyone by surprise. On June 26, 1948, President Harry S. Truman, the same man who, as a senator back in 1939, had arranged for that pilot training program we mentioned last week, issued Executive Order 9981, which said in part that, quote, it is to be the policy of the president that there shall be equal treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed forces without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin, end quote. I recently heard someone say that for Harry Truman to have been a successful politician in Missouri in the 1930s and 40s, he had to have been a racist, or at least spout racist ideology on the campaign trail. But I don't believe that he was. Granted, I am by no means a Truman scholar, but I haven't run across any quotes from him to back up the racist claim, and his actions seem to prove, at least to me, that he decided to integrate the military because he truly believed it was the right thing to do. During a 1940 election speech, he said, quote, In giving Negroes the rights that are theirs, we are only acting in accord with our ideals of a true democracy, end quote. Though he likely wanted to do it for a while, there may have been one post-war incident that finally convinced Truman that integration was the only way to go, regardless of the consequences. After three years of overseas Army service, Sergeant Isaac Woodward returned home to Aiken, South Carolina, and was almost immediately arrested and held without charges. During the arrest, the local sheriff beat Woodward and struck him so violently on the head that the sergeant was permanently blinded. The sheriff was tried, but only because the NAACP brought national attention to the incident, and when the sheriff testified, without evidence, that Woodward had attacked him and he was only acting in self-defense, the sheriff was acquitted. Afterwards, 
the entire town turned out to celebrate that justice had been served. Now, you can't see it because this is an audio medium, but I made air quotes with my fingers when I said justice just then. Truman was outraged at the verdict and vowed to fight, in his words, these sorts of evil actions. He established a presidential committee on civil rights, which, in 1947, called for changes in public policy and really homed in on the military. When the Department of Defense ignored this call for integration and Congress declined to take action, Truman targeted the military with his executive order because it was one of the few areas where he had tangible authority to back it up through his role as commander-in-chief. There were many in his own Democratic Party that left and actively campaigned against him because of his stance, but when he was surprisingly re-elected, the executive order remained in place. Integration didn't happen overnight, but by the mid-1950s, the last of the military's segregated units were officially disbanded. In 1947, the same year Truman established his Civil Rights Commission, the U.S. Army Air Corps officially separated from the U.S. Army and the United States Air Force was born. It was already working toward integration when the executive order was issued in 1948. The Air Force had created a plan for integration, submitted it to the DOD for approval, and sent it out to the entire force in January 1949. Part of the plan was to eliminate the segregated 332nd Fighter Wing and integrate the Tuskegee Airmen into previously all-white units. At first, many of the Red Tails were afraid this was a ploy by the Air Force to ease them out of the service, but Air Force Chief of Staff General Hoyt Vandenberg took it upon himself to ensure that no such purge happened. He admitted that this would likely cause some level of friction and incidents, but held every senior and junior commander in the force personally responsible for the positive implementation of the new policy. It wasn't perfect. Some senior officers resigned their commissions in protest, and some junior officers who had served under them were threatened with courts-martial. But all things considered, integrating the Air Force went more smoothly than anyone thought possible. Not surprisingly, when the Air Force split from the Army, Colonel Davis went with the new military branch. In 1949, he entered the new Air War College and followed that with a tour at the Pentagon where he gained approval to create the Air Force Thunderbird Flight Demonstration Team, a team that continues to thrill spectators at air shows the world over. In 1953, he was given command of the 51st Fighter Interceptor Wing and again saw combat, this time in the Korean War. After that war, he remained in the Far East, filling various assignments in Japan and Taiwan. It was during these assignments in 1954 that he was promoted to Brigadier General. Just as his father had been the first black general in the U.S. Army, Davis Jr. became the first black general in the U.S. Air Force. 
After his promotion, he spent the rest of the 1950s serving in senior positions with the occupation force in Germany and in 1959 was promoted to Major General. His record of impeccable service continued, and after assignments in the U.S. and back in Korea, he was promoted to Lieutenant General and took command of Clark Air Base in the Philippines in 1967. Lieutenant General Benjamin Oliver Davis Jr. retired from the Air Force on February 1, 1970, but there was one more promotion in his future. In 1998, President Bill Clinton promoted the retired Davis to full general, the first African-American to be so honored in retirement. After leaving the military, Davis joined the Department of Transportation. As its Director of Civil Aviation Security, he implemented the Federal Sky Marshal Program that effectively ended a wave of aircraft hijackings in the United States during the 1970s. In 1971, he became Assistant Secretary of Transportation and one of the most vocal proponents of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit enacted nationwide by the U.S. government in 1974 in an effort to save lives and gas. Okay, I guess that just proves he was fallible after all. Davis retired from the Department of Transportation in 1975 and in 1978 joined the Battle Monuments Commission as his father had decades before. In 1991, he published an autobiography titled Benjamin O. Davis Jr., American. In 1992, he received the Langley Gold Medal from the Smithsonian Institution, awarded annually for outstanding contributions to the sciences of aeronautics and astronautics and was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at the San Diego Air and Space Museum in 1996. General Davis, who suffered from Alzheimer's disease later in life, died at Walter Reed Medical Center in Washington, D.C. on July 4, 2002. He and his wife Agatha, who passed away a few months earlier, were laid to rest in a joint funeral at Arlington National Cemetery on July 17th and interred in Section 2, Grave E-311-RH. A red-tailed P-51 Mustang flew over the ceremony while President Bill Clinton gave the eulogy, saying, General Davis is here today as proof that a person can overcome adversity and discrimination, achieve great things, turn skeptics into believers, and through example and perseverance, one person can bring truly amazing change. Today, secondary schools in Detroit, Michigan, Compton, California, Cleveland, Ohio, and Houston, Texas are named in his honor. In 2015, West Point named a newly constructed barracks after him. And in 2019, the airfield at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado was renamed the Benjamin O. Davis Airfield. I want to wrap up today with just a few final words about the Tuskegee Airmen. Nothing I could say could possibly add to their already incredible legacy, so I will just share two more notes. On March 29, 2007, President George W. Bush presented the Congressional Gold Medal to approximately 300 Red Tails or their widows 
at a ceremony in the Capitol Rotunda. I would like to offer a gesture to help atone for all the unreturned salutes and unforgivable indignities. And so on behalf, on behalf of the office I hold and a country that honors you, I salute you for the service to the United States of America. And finally, just over a month ago from the day this episode drops, on January 16, 2022, one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, Brigadier General Charles McGee, died in his sleep at age 102. McGee's military career lasted 30 years, and he flew combat missions in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. He retired a colonel and was promoted to brigadier general in 2019, just after his 100th birthday. While visiting the White House in February 2020, President Donald Trump pinned on McGee's stars in a ceremony in the Oval Office. While the details of his funeral are still being worked out, this American hero and aviation icon will be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are photographs and additional information about every episode on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. Ghosts of Arlington is also on Facebook and Twitter, and links to those sites are in the show notes. As always, I encourage you to leave a review and five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you stream the show, as that helps others find the podcast. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal. <laughs>